welcome to the Camden Fringe Pod, a podcast all about the Camden Fringe. Keep listening for a glimpse behind the curtains and to find out how you can get involved in, you guessed it, the Camden Fringe. Hello, I'm Michelle. I'm Zena. Welcome to the Camden Fringe Pod. Um, We've decided to go fortnightly for a little while. Well, it's the downtime between fringes. We've not quite started organising 2024 yet. No, thank goodness. We've got other stuff to do, haven't we? What have we got coming up, Michelle? Coming up, we've got an interview with Suchandrika Chakrabarti, who did her second Camden Fringe show this summer. She's going to be talking about how she came to do a second show, how she came to do a first show going to Edinburgh in between and the inspiration behind both our shows. Oh, and what have you been doing this week? I have done some running. I did a half marathon mm-hmm. on Sunday. Mm-hmm. Wow. Half marathon. Yeah. I was very underprepared for it. And then um, that evening I went to see Adrian Edmondson doing a show and guess who I bumped into there? Who did you bump into there? It was you. It was me. We didn't know each other was going. Who'd have thought we would both be in the theatre? <laughs> Well, going to see Adrian Edmondson. Who'd have going thought? Going to see it? Adrian Edmondson. Oh, bless him! What did you think of the show? Well, quite interesting. I'd only booked it about a week or so previously when I had been at the Lowry seeing Rory Stewart doing a talk about his book, and his book is brilliant. Really, really brilliant. The talk itself. You know, when you're looking forward to seeing something and then you you watch it and you think, "Mm, I like you slightly less than I did before I watched this talk. But I think he did the thing that, you know, Adrian Edmondson at the beginning of his show, he said a lot of these events are um, somebody being interviewed about their book and the person who does the interview is not very interested and they go on Wikipedia and ask you some very basic questions. And Adrian Edmonton had decided not to go with that format, as Rory Stewart did. And the the person interviewing him, I can't remember his name, but seemed to kind of hate him. (laughs) And at one point he said, yes, one of the worst bits of the book was this. That's not very nice. Blooming hell, like that's not really playing the game. But the book is far more entertaining than um, than the talk was. But it's quite interesting that those sort of book events are now a book event, whereas previously you'd gone to Waterstones for free, wouldn't you? And Yeah, it would have been like a signing and maybe a, a bit of a reading, but now they are a full hour and a half performance, or not even a performance. The guy at the bar, when I was buying the drinks, he was very good. He was called Jamie, excellent customer service. But he kept going, enjoy the, and he's obviously used to saying enjoy the show, but he kept going, enjoy the evening because they obviously weren't allowed to say it was a show because it wasn't quite a show yeah there's a whole production company isn't there called fane that do loads of these shows Mm. it was quite flimsy oh yeah there's not much to it because it is like a a live advert in a way i suppose it's a very good way of shifting a large amount of books very quickly so you can get the person up their book charts Mm -hmm. if if they're popular enough that they're gonna sell some tickets otherwise it won't work at all um but I found yeah I just found it quite flimsy and Adrian Edmondson's I obviously it was adorable because he's adorable but it was pretty simple wasn't it he had a few stories a bit of a reading then some questions 
there's probably quite a lot of money being made with that, really, because it was a it was full, wasn't it? A couple of thousand people. Well, you know, it's a quite a good supplementary income if you're a writer, and you obviously can only produce so much work and sell mm. so many books that it, doing talks and places is something that you make some money out of. Yeah, I suppose there's loads of writers that just couldn't do it because they they became writers because they don't do talking because they're in their own head, and the last thing they would want to do would be on a stage. But it's quite interesting, isn't it? Mm. I'm going to see Ruby Wax soon and also James O'Brien. Very good. So shall we move on to this week's interview, which is a bit more relevant to the Camden Fringe? But hey, this is a performance chat as well. It's not all Camden Fringe. If anyone wants to come and do a book talk at the Camden Fringe next year, they're welcome to, but they better be entertaining. Yeah, it'd be quite an interesting strand to have, wouldn't it? Hmm. Here comes Suchandrika. Thanks for being on the podcast. You've come here to talk about your second Camden Fringe show, Doom Scrolling, which you did this summer. But I think to start off with, let's have a little chat about your past show. Um, so you'd previously did a show called I Love Amy Winehouse. I miss Amy Winehouse. I miss Amy Winehouse. Sorry, I'm thinking of I Love Michael Ball now. I've mixed it up. <laughs> uh, it's very similar icons, Michael Ball and Amy Winehouse. <laughs> A show I could only dream of doing. <laughs> yeah, so that that was Camden Fringe 2021, which I didn't, it must have felt like a weird one for you both, like just after the pandemic. I'd only started comedy in January 2020. As I do like to say, I have I had been funny before then, um, mm-hmm. occasionally. So I'd, I'd been a journalist before then, and I'd stood on stages a lot, and I'd also trained journalists a lot. And I think there was something of the comedy show to that and that people would review me to others and be like, is it worth going to? But um, I'd gone freelance in April 2018 and I'd always want to try comedy, but it was very hard with the hours I kept with journalism and the shifts I did. So I did a stand-up course at Bill Murray, which was amazing, taught by uh, the excellent Ben Target, and did like a, a show at the end of the course on the Bill Murray stage, which is amazing. And then obviously live performance went away pretty much immediately. Mm-hmm. My timing was off there, but I had the video and I sort of like got into a few competitions like Funny Women and uh, was a semi-finalist and things like that, which made me think maybe I could take this a bit more seriously. Maybe I could do something more with this. And in terms of like, writing a show, that was a weird time and I couldn't gig very much. And I know people ideally take their best sort of 10 minute sets and put them all together. But I'd, um, in, tr- in like training people, I'd written sort of, you know given all day long sessions of training so I'd written sort of hours and hours of stuff which I'd presented and a comedy show is not the same as presenting training but I did have slides behind me there was something of what I'd learned from those experiences that I brought to the show but I sort of just sat down and wrote it in May 2021 I challenged myself and I did manage it and then I did like two days at Brighton and then a bit a few days in it came to Fringe which felt just like the perfect place to come to and that one in a way was quite quite easy to write and kind of just flowed and I hit that particular deadline and then yeah kind of I, got, I had some reviews at Camden I had some feedback and I found that incredibly helpful because in the next year I went up to Edinburgh I did my debut and did the 20 other days so yeah I think those early days kind of trying it on Camden really built my confidence showed me I could get an audience in and a lot of Amy fans came along and it was nice to do it in Camden and, and have them in the audience. It was always lovely to meet them. So when you applied for the Camden Fringe, had you written the show at that time or was it just an idea? No, I had not written the show. 
Um, so I was going to have to. And I find often, maybe many people listening can um, they understand this, that I have a deadline and just have to hit it. Did you find like you had a very clear concept and you said um, you use slides and things. Did you find that having that helped you kind of punctuate your writing and, and help you sort of work out the narrative of the show? To a certain extent, there were certain photos, certain things I wanted to get in. I think not on day one, but as time went on, yes. Also, I was a bit scared of doing 60 minutes, like remembering 60 minutes. And in the past, I've tried to remember scripts and I'm not an actor. Like I just did some casual stuff at uni. And I was like, oh, I, I can't do this. I can't remember scripts. And so I was concerned about that kind of stuff. So having slides and having a bit of a prop felt to me that took the pressure off me a bit. Um, but over time, playing with the slides was a tricky one. So if I gave control to someone else, like the show just fell apart because it's never the same show every night. I'll hit 60 minutes. I, I won't go over, but what happened at 15 minutes on Wednesday will not be what happens at 15 minutes on Thursday. So the poor tech, who's obviously working to the timings I've given them and is only doing what they should be doing, they're changing the slide. And I'm like, oh, God. Um, so I found out very quickly that doesn't work. So I had to be in control of slides. I had to buy a little clicker thing. And um, when I was in charge of the slides, it became, yeah, like punctuation, as you say, kind of. Yeah, I, I sometimes forget which slide was next, which is so bad because I like to shuffle them around. And, you know, you still edit when you're doing a run. I edited in Camden. I did two dates quite close together. I sort of had feedback, had some reviews and then changed off for the third date and actually felt it was a better show for that. And mm-hmm. that was a really helpful way to do it. If you're not sticking to a definite script every night, but you have got these slides and then you're talking about the slides, it sort of shows that you're, you know what you want to talk about and you're quite confident in your material. It's quite nice. I think sometimes people stick too rigidly to a script and then if you lose your place in the script then you can just completely panic and it all goes to pop yeah and that's that's my fear with the script but sort of ideal way if, if i budget my time correctly before a deadline more than anything so i was gonna say if i have enough time but there's always enough time it's did i start early enough and it's getting to know a script or getting to know a stand-up set that i've written but then you need to lose it again and get loose and not be like you're reading it from inside your head and and so for me, it's more like getting from a bullet point or like an, one idea to the other. So with I Miss Amy Winehouse, it's structured like a personal essay, which I've been writing a lot of since I'd gone freelance. And so with a personal essay, you tend to have an image or a person like Amy Winehouse whom the, the reader or the audience like knows and they can imagine. And so for me, Amy Winehouse was this symbol and this idea and everyone's heard of her and has their own feelings about her. The show's actually about losing my parents in my late teens. And so how, number one, how is that a comedy show? Um, and number two, how do I structure this show that it doesn't just make the audience sad? Because that's quite a big sort of emotional truth bomb to drop on people. And then thirdly, although this didn't worry me too much, people could throw a lot of crap at the idea of the 45-minute dead dad thing. Mm-hmm. And I do understand that. But also, this is my story, and I did feel that my debut show has been an introduction to who I am, and I can't ignore these huge events that happened in my life and shaped me. It was coming to 20 years and I felt I had a perspective on it which was helpful particularly after a pandemic where a lot of people have been introduced to grief so my feeling was going in after 20 years what's my attitude what's my kind of approach and I thought well maybe it's looking for how to find solutions to missing someone then you can cut down to the absurdity of what losing someone is um it's cutting down to the absurdity of celebrity and so in that sense I I felt it had to be very highly structured and I had to keep trying out on people and seeing what the reaction was and seeing how they felt. And like an example of trying stuff out was I did like a Zoom with my very close friends 
maybe before I even took it to Brighton, which was the month before Camden Fringe in August 2021. And of course, they were very complimentary and they're very kind and lovely about it. But one thing most of them said was, you need to have a line just saying, like, they died of illness or like, because people worry and it stays with them and they keep wondering what happened. And then you don't want to lose the rest of the show. And I was like, that's so interesting. That's really important mm. advice. So, um, yes, I'd say that it was such a useful, important way for me to learn what my process was with the show. I didn't know I could write a show until then. I didn't know what it looked like. And it, it's also the subject matter is very personal and close to my heart. And it's going to make audiences feel a certain way. And I think that is a tricky thing for a first show to know that people are going to have like quite big emotions and you want to make sure they're laughing. So how do I make that work? And the only way you can really make that work is to keep trying it, keep doing the show. And so with doom scrolling, did you manage to preview that in a different way to what you did with your first show? Yeah, it's been completely different. And I think that um, it's a companion show in lots of ways. I think with doom scrolling, it's looking at this, negative experience that pretty much all of us go through again like grief and um, doom scrolling i feel is about the tension between wanting knowledge but fearing distraction and that produces anxiety and this this feeling you're always on which is really tough yes yeah, so i started off with like just some ideas and then in july 2022 so we, um, a month before i go up to edinburgh with my first show um vault festival which hadn't happened that year but they did a pinch of vault, like a little mini festival in the summer. So I feel like I'm the same way house is done. But I've got this new show idea. So I wrote a 45 minute show and went and did that. And I have to say, like, it's changed. Like the core concept is still there, but it's changed so much. Partly because the news changes so much. So I have kept rewriting it. Then I did it again. I was part of Mark Watson's Access Festival on Next Up Comedy in January. And in my experience of doing online stuff, it's got to be a lot more interactive I mean, a bit gamified than a live show. And particularly with his audience who watch things like No More Jockeys and like they like a game and they like to feel involved. So I wrote a different version of the show where it's much more of a quiz. Um, and I've kept elements of that quiz. I'm not sure how much it works as a live show. So it's another rewrite. And it's just been so many rewrites. And I'm getting to a point now where um, I'm trying to figure out how can I keep the show at a point where I'm not rewriting it because of the news but because mm. it works creatively and it has to come down to I need more of me and my personal takes or the persona I'm sort of playing um so like my background's in journalism I'm making the show about how the news works I need to give some more of the insider info maybe and like how I felt with well, that is maybe Amy so personal and I'd say with doom scrolling you know my career is part of it but I chose this huge topic the news and then I've been trying to get down to the news yes but why by me and what does that have to give to an audience so I'm getting there slowly and is your plan with the show to follow the same pattern as Amy Winehouse and take it to Edinburgh next year yeah ideally obviously like financially it's kind of crippling and um yeah that'll be helpful maybe I'll do partial run and I think now that I've done the debut and done the full run I know what that feels like and it was fine. It was good. Obviously I got sick and lost my voice and the usual, but I, I'm seeing sort of people doing shorter runs and things like that. Did you get a lot out of doing Edinburgh? Yes. I think it built my trust in myself that it's not about staying faithful to a script. 
it's about a lot of gut instincts and seeing what lands and then working with that the next day and trying new stuff a bit and it's much about the energy in the room and the audience reception and I won't forget the script and I can improvise new bits and yeah it's it's very good for me as as a comedian just especially because I'm I'm doing the show you know quite early on I'd only started in January 2020 yeah, how did you find getting an audience at 12.15? Really interesting. Um, and I was off the beaten track a bit as well. So I was in Paradise Green, which is sort of on the sort of west end of Cowgate in the bottom of the church. And it's like a no-through road. Just I just, there were obstacles um, to getting people in. But I would literally get four people in one day, then 22. And then the, the next day, four again. And so there was no way of telling. So you just had to roll with it. And then the thing is, like, a four-person audience can be amazing. And then there was a day when there was like 20 odd people in and I knew quite a few of them, but they wouldn't laugh very much. I had to stop second guessing myself and just do the show. And my feeling is be glad anyone's here because I know I know it could be like, oh no, it's only four people, but it's not the fault of the four people. They're there. They turned up. It's actually thank you for people. Um, so that I went with the attitude of I'm very grateful you're here. And it probably taught me that, that they are the ones to be thankful <laughs> for and do was it quite hard to step away from amy winehouse when you were thinking right this show i've done this show for you know a year and a half two years i now need to move away and start working on a new show was that quite scary no i was desperate to start on the new one i think that it was nice that i'd already had as it now turns out a, a very tiny kernel of the idea because i have to do so much work on it the last one performed the amy show was uh, the Pleasants did the best of Edinburgh season in their London theatre and so I was thrilled to be part of that and it uh, felt like a, like a line drawn under it I think again it's managing the reception of it um, in terms of doing the show I don't get upset because otherwise as a show it would be um, something like trauma dumping which is not fair but the, it can be difficult for the audience Obviously, like your first audiences are people who know you and they're supporting you. And that's incredible and generous. But for some people, they, they didn't necessarily know that like I'd lost my parents and my teens. And so that was a bit of a ah for them in terms of like come to my comedy show. Oh, this is like quite tricky, emotional thing you have to deal with as well. It's quite nice. I thought of doing a show that's much more straightforward. This is a comedy show. What you see is what you get. And yeah, I was ready to try that out and like try just me and a mic. I think it was helpful that I had written 45 minutes of a new show. I knew I had something to move on to. So do you think at that moment in time, if I didn't have a new idea, then I would have felt a bit, oh, what's happening next? Just because I still haven't found what makes sustainability in this career. I believe that is a problem for many people. And the one thing you can do for yourself is have the ideas and at least go, well, I'm working on my next thing. And that feels like something to you. If you've put yourself into the first show and you go, right, this is my big idea and this is my show. And then if you're thinking, right, I've got to do a second show and you don't have an idea, that's scary. But you were lucky in that you you had the idea already. And I'm, I'm not saying to anyone listening that you have to have this second idea or in the pocket this is just how I felt mm. and it could be because again I'm not 25 straight out of uni doing comedy the way quote-unquote should do it like a bit older and um had processed and dealt with this this big thing in my life and was a bit like <laughs> I, I want to crack on and get on with it in a way that's possibly not so hugely healthy either but at least the idea was there and that for me was like great I've got something 
to work with here. And I suppose it's another introductory show to me, but it's like a career-based one. It just happens that my career involved stories and public figures and the, what I think is quite the opaque systems that make our news. And those have only sped up. And I think possibly you've got both more mysterious, but less mysterious because like we all use social media. That is where a lot of stories journalists pick up come from. But then how does it get that headline and all that? Doom scrolling is intense and a lot to deal with. And I don't have an answer necessarily for how we deal with it, but it's part of human nature, I think, to want all this information that's at our fingertips. Like, aren't we also living in the greatest time in history? Because we can find out this information. We can see how other people live. I think there have been some sort of rights movements, things like uh, Me Too and Black Lives Matter have been enabled by the internet and because we can see each other's lives and go, that doesn't seem fair. There have been some really good things. And I think we we don't always look at the good. Possibly because the bad is so terrible. Trolling is awful. I've not experienced it myself. But um, within journalism, I've seen particularly young female reporters deal with it. And we had to come up with ways of trying to figure that out. There's a real power imbalance with journalism, with social media and with comedy that I think is a kind of uniting factor and um, power is ridiculous, but the most important thing. So maybe there'll be stuff around that. And I don't know, it's still, you know, quite an open thing, but yes, there's always so much material. A lot of it isn't personally tethered to my life. And if people wanted to see the show, can they still catch it in other places? Yeah. So, um, Women in Comedy Festival in Manchester. I'll be there for that on the 11th of October. And I was at Camden Comedy Club um, during the Camden Fringe this year. And so I've sort of gone back to, to them and hopefully I'll be doing some work in progresses at Camden Comedy Club and Aces and Eights over the next couple of months. And then next year looking at kind of Leicester Comedy Festival and all the usual places. But I think with this show, I have to go and work it out in front of audience, almost even more than with I Miss Amy. So I think with I Miss Amy, it was about how how's the audience feeling and working with the responses and thinking, well, you know, how, how early on do I say this thing happened to me? And that, that felt quite straightforward. With doom scrolling, it feels like, am I throwing too much information at them? Am I giving them enough of my take on it? It feels like I've chosen this massive subject that everyone has a stake in and everyone can have an opinion on. And it will take some time to whittle it down to. But what is the show that is made by me? And why why should they come to a show by me? What's my take on it? And it's a different set of challenges to Amy. And I think I wouldn't have been up to the challenge as much if I hadn't made a show before. and know that it's possible. Because I think, I think I'm in the middle of quite a lot of stuff right now. And if I hadn't have made a show before and knew that I can... I might feel like, how am I going to swim out of this one? <laughs> like, this is a lot. Um, but it is like, I'm smiling and laughing while I'm telling you this. It is also really fun. Like the, the two solo shows I did um, at Camden Fringe this year, they're just really fun. Like they're just mad headlines out there. I've always loved an animal friendship. Um, I love it when like a duckling gets adopted by a goat. And, and so like, yeah, they're so fun. And so I think this is my antidote to all like the sort of mad political news and the, the whole September 2022 was insane. And a real kind of inspiration for this show, right? Because like the Queen's dead 
Liz Truss is doing that 45-minute thing, uh, 45 days, sorry, 45 minutes. <laughs> Give the lady her flowers, 45 days. And um, the queue, it was just a very surreal, very British time. I wonder what like the world thought of when they looked at this once great power and were like, watching the queue? Is it watching the queue? <laughs> it's, um, and it's it's all it's awful like loads of people's mortgages went up as a direct consequence of this trust's premiership it's bad and like you know rents have gone up a lot of terrible financial things have actually come out but you can find the absurd things about the month or at least like we had a little laugh there of like that was a weird month and i think again it's finding the absurd i guess that's what my company is like let's draw down like this awful stuff and it affects us and i think like when i was in a newsroom you can have three or four screens to yourself like it's like a fortress and you could just stare at the internet all day long it can be hard to stand out early in your career like in, an, in a journalistic career in an arts career sometimes and so often a response can be well I'll work the longest and so you get people going home staying on Twitter well beyond their shift and then emailing a story in have you seen this have you seen this and I think that mechanism to try and like stand above the parapet a bit that for me was like I need to delve into that psychology. People need to rest. They need to take time off. Being chronically online, we know is not good for you. So how do I tackle that in a fun way? One thing, one thing I'm playing with is, am I trying to explain the future to my niece, who's currently five, but like an imagined version of her in the future? There, I think there's something about like looking to the future and speculative stuff, because no one can tell me I'm wrong, which um, journalism does a lot of that, like predicting. But I think also like having a character, having a figure who's going to live... In this world, which if, you know, climate crisis is going the way we worry it's going, it's going to be a very different world. And then generationally, there's been such a difference between uh, millennials and boomers in particular in terms of like the welfare state. You've got to really wonder what like going to university is going to look like for someone who's five now. So I think that for me is also a very motivating factor of trying to find a level of sense or even just in the process of being a person who's undone by doom scrolling, trying to find sense, which might be very sensible. Having someone you have to explain it to, having that, the idea of a character there is is helpful. And that's, that's quite a new one as well for me, I suppose. Um, trying to give sensible advice via comedy to my niece. Um, <laughs> I don't know if it's going to be that helpful for her, but she'll be amused. I generally amuse her, which is good. She's my, she's my best audience. Oh, you also um, compared the best of Camden Fringe. Was that a skill that you'd done before? I'd not emceed. Yeah, that was definitely a skill I wanted to uh, work on. But yeah, I've like still on stages and kind of hosted things, I suppose, just not comedy. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I just thought really keep it minimal stage time for me, <laughs> like have four people on. But I think, um, yeah, the idea like you guys came up with of having the best of Camden Fringe was really lovely because it was it felt celebratory it felt like saying to people well done but yeah they're really fun nights really well attended with with great audiences and uh yeah really glad i did that because um i'd love to do more emceeing without a doubt it was really fun yeah thank you very much for doing it because that was yeah it was a really lovely addition and i yeah i like the fact it was just very spontaneous quite last minute yeah i mean strip like who were behind like camden comedy club like they were so helpful with sorting it out and yeah that was it was really nice like um I think I've been a bit slow to like 
try and set up a night or mixed bills or something like because the pandemic sort of was my introduction to comedy mm-hmm. but let's hope there might be something fingers crossed that i might be doing uh watch this space that i might have you be setting up a mixed bill night so we'll see yeah it'll be really cool i'll definitely let you guys Ooh. know about it so um just talking to people at the moment so where can people find you and your work online? Because you have a podcast as well, don't you? Oh, so I, I don't make my own of podcasts. Um, but yeah, so I guess in a few podcasts, like uh, The Week Unwrapped is one I'm on sort of every other month on Balance there. And sometimes on Paper Cuts as well. So these are quite like newsy podcasts. Um, but Paper Cuts is very funny as well. And then, um, yeah, I'm on social media. So at Sachandrika C on Twitter. I refuse to call it anything else. And I'll be there until the ship sinks. So you'll find me there. Um, on Instagram is at Sachandrika. That's maybe the safest one. And uh, TikTok, Blue Sky, all of them. If you can Google Sachandrika, you, you can find me. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'll am put my dates and stuff on social. So. Well, thank you so much for talking to us today. <laughs> thanks. Thanks for having me. And good luck with the future of doom scrolling. Bye. Bye.